Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you an interview with Dr. David Grinspoon. That's right. Uh, Dr. David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist, award-winning science communicator, and prize-winning author, and is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. Um, yes, and he is uh, the co-author, along with Dr. Alan Stern, principal investigator of the New Horizons mission. Uh, they're the authors of Chasing New Horizons Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. This was a really fun conversation. I'm really glad we got to talk to David about Pluto, about space exploration, about planets in general. And I think you are going to love this conversation. That's right. Even if you're not that into Pluto or you think you're not that into Pluto, uh, there's also some Venus talk in there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's tremendous. Uh, definitely check it out. We're just going to dive right into the interview and meet you on the other end. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, my name is David Grinspoon. I'm an astrobiologist at the Planetary Science Institute, um, and I study planetary evolution, and I get involved in some uh, spacecraft missions to other planets. And I've, uh, I've written a few books, most recently, Uh, Chasing New Horizons Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto, which I co-authored with Alan Stern, who was the uh, himself the uh, the leader of the Epic First Mission to Pluto. Awesome. I I just want to stress to everyone listening uh, that this is a a great book. And if anyone is uh, scared off from it thinking, oh, I don't want to read about space probes and a far-flung dwarf planet, I just want to reassure them that this is not only a very insightful book, it really has a a narrative of adventure in many respects. So uh, I wanted to ask, how did did you come to write uh, or to come to co-author what some have called a nonfiction Michael Crichton novel? (laughs) Well, I like that. Um, I like that description. Yeah, well, th- this story, the story of New Horizons and of the exploration of Pluto is one that I've been following closely for a long time, uh, much longer, actually, than there was a mission called New Horizons. There was an effort to uh, send a mission to Pluto. And it just so happened that being a planetary scientist and coming up um through you know grad school and, and all that at a certain time, that a lot of the people that I'm close with and friends with um, and have known for a long time have been caught up uh, and became part of this, this effort. So this was a struggle that people were going through who I knew well for, for, for decades. And at times it seemed like a very quixotic journey, like Oh, there's no way this is going to happen. I can't believe what these guys are going through. I can't believe they're not giving up. And and I remember thinking, you know, well over a decade ago, probably a couple decades ago, wow, you know, if these guys ever actually succeed in doing this, it's going to be a great story. Uh, it's going to make a great book someday. It's going to be a great book anyways because of what these guys are going through. But if they actually succeed, it's going to be an amazing book. I, I remember thinking that. Um, and then more recently, uh, in um, I guess 2014, when New Horizons was actually approaching Pluto, finally, Alan Stern, who I've known for a long time, uh, approached me and said, "Hey, I'm thinking of uh, I, I want to write a book about New Horizons, and 
I want to do it with a, with a co-author and, and, and you're my first choice. And, um, I was, uh, I was really psyched. I mean, you know, when you get an offer like that, what's the right answer? You know, <laughs> yes, of course. And so, so we uh, agreed to enter into a, a partnership and, and try to tell the story. Um, and, um, you know, that had, that had its own kinds of challenges because obviously Alan's relationship to the story is very different from mine. And how are we going to sort of combine our two perspectives and, uh, and tell, tell the story where he, you know, he's a character in the book, um, and it's, it's his mission, but we, we worked really hard on that and thought about how we could use that as a strength or that, you know, the kind of combination of our two perspectives. And I, uh, it, it, it was, it was tricky, but I, th- I think we succeeded in uh, producing a book that, that not only tells a, a, a pretty exciting story, but does it in a unique way. Absolutely. Uh, you know, at times reading this book, I kept coming back to a question that I, I guess may, may sound a little cheeky, but, but also probably gets to some of the challenges of, of space exploration, whether it's harder to send a spacecraft to Pluto or uh, to successfully push a me- mission proposal through NASA. Uh, and I want to come back to that, you know, get your thoughts on that. But, but I thought it might be nice to touch on that, that first challenge and, uh, you know, the amazing methods uh, we use to send spacecraft through the solar system. Would you tell uh, our listeners about uh, our early dreams of a grand tour and the, the time frame for capitalizing on what you describe as uh, excellently described in the book is, is a kind of stargate? Yeah, well... Um... I, I love the first part of your question, so we definitely need to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because, because yes, it's there's some ways in which it's harder to navigate uh, Washington D.C. than than um, than the outer solar system. <laughs> both <laughs> both have their own challenges, and you have to learn how to be good at both if you want to do this. But um, the Grand Tour, um, yeah. So, well, it's it's very difficult to send the spacecraft as far as Pluto, um, and if you were just going to launch from Earth with a normal rocket and just try to head out there, it would take, um, well, much longer than, than New Horizons took. You know, when New Horizons basically took only a decade to cross the solar system, it would take longer because the distances are so great. But um, you can take advantage of something called a gravitational assist where you fly in close to a giant planet with a huge gravitational pull. And if you aim in just the right way, um, then you use the gravity, the giant gravitational pull of that giant planet to sort of slingshot you around. You know, it pulls you in, but you miss the planet, and then it flings you out. And you have to aim just right, but you can use that to get a boost, a, a big pickup in speed, which makes it much quicker to execute the rest of your journey across the solar system if you've, if you've done everything right. And the first time this was really used to dramatic effect was uh, the, the Voyager mission, the Voyager missions, which were, uh, you know, our first close flybys of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune Voyagers. Uh, they launched in 1977. The Neptune encounter of Voyager 2, was, which was the last one, was 1989. So all through the the late 70s and, and, and the 80s, these missions were going planet to planet and sort of expanding our, our knowledge of our solar system and dramatic encounters. And there's a certain element of luck there that a lot of people really aren't probably aware of. But if you look historically, I mean, you know, we started sending spacecraft to other planets in the 60s and, you know, the, Venus, Mars in, in the 60s and then um, started thinking about farther going farther afield 
And it just so happens that occasionally there's a lineup of all the planets in just the right way so that if you launch at the right time, you can slingshot past Jupiter and then that sends you to Saturn and then you slingshot past Saturn and that sends you to Uranus and then to Neptune and then to Pluto, et cetera. Um, and, but you have to picture the planets have to be lined up just right, sort of like beads on a spiral going out from the sun. And that alignment only happens every couple hundred years. And the amazing historical luck that I, that I was mentioning that people aren't aware of is that in the late 1960s, early 1970s, scientists became aware, you know, just when we were gaining the ability to launch spacecraft off of Earth and going to the planets for the first time, scientists became aware that one of these, what they call grand tour alignments, was coming up in the late 1970s and 80s. So that if you launched a spacecraft by the mid to late 1970s from Earth, you could do this grand tour and go all the way out to Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. But if you missed that window, that 1970s window, you wouldn't get another chance like this for a couple hundred years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, it was sort of just in the nick of time, but it was also a rush to launch because this people realized this and the scientists proposed a grand tour in the early 70s. And then Congress said, no, that's too expensive. Go back to the drawing board. And they were like, well, we don't have much time to get this together. You know, it, it, there was some drama there, but they they reproposed and Voyager got approved and, and the Grand Tour mission became the Voyager mission, which culminated in uh, in the encounter, the amazing encounter with Neptune and its moon Triton in 1989 with Voyager 2. And as we tell in, in the book Chasing New Horizons, in a lot of ways, that encounter set the stage for the desire to go to Pluto, because with Neptune, uh, you know, it was sort of all over for that generation. And young scientists were like, well, wait a minute, there's more to explore. What are we going to do? And Triton, which was the last place Voyager went, little moon of of Neptune, is is, is a very sort of Pluto-like place, a really strange icy world with um, solid nitrogen basins and all this strange activity and geography. And it made people think, gosh, if we could only send a mission to Pluto, and right sort of in the wake of the end of the Voyager mission, at least the Voyager planetary encounters, was uh, born the desire, uh, you know, really in 1989 for this this crazy idea of sending a mission to Pluto, which culminated, uh, you know, 20, um, 26 years later with the successful flyby of uh, Pluto by New Horizons in 2015. Now you were talking about uh, uh, gravity assist there, and uh, and of course the, the what ultimately became uh, New Horizons, the New Horizons mission. It went through. You discuss all the different sort of versions of the proposal. Uh, at one point, the proposal was actually actually involved sending uh, a craft towards the sun first, right? Oh yeah, there was one um, trajectory that would have worked um, as far as using these gravitational encounters to get to Pluto. But it would have involved going towards the sun and flying by Venus first and then back by Earth, and which is, by the way, something that is um, done. Uh, you know, that's actually how um, both both uh, Galileo and Cassini on their way to Jupiter and Saturn both did Venus flybys. Um, sometimes you go in and pick up speed and then you fling back outwards. But it was really not optimal for a small Pluto mission. And it, w- it would have worked. 
but it would have taken more years, um, and it already takes a long time to get out to Pluto. Um, and also, um, I mean, it would have saved energy and money, and that's the other thing. You're not just doing this to save time on the journey. You, you want to launch a smaller rocket and still have enough energy to get to uh, the outer solar system, and that's where these encounters help you also by picking up speed. So it would have worked, but you also, it's not optimal because when you're designing something to endure the coldness of the outer, outer solar system where Pluto is, you really don't want to send that spacecraft in towards the sun and endure the uh, thermal environment near Venus if you can help it. So it was one of the things that came onto the table to possibly save the Pluto mission, which had to be done multiple times when things got canceled and the budget got constricted or whatever. But it turned out to not really be the best way to do it. Yeah, you lay out um, you know all the close calls that just the uh, uh, you know the the quest to send um, uh, a craft to Pluto went through. How many close calls were there, and how astounding is it that the mission happened at all? It really is kind of a perils of Pauline story, you know, like where everything that can go wrong almost did go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's that's part of part of why I love this story because you, we wanted to let people know not just what happened and how it was done, but really what it takes to get something through the system and all the different things that can derail it. And this story kind of combines all of those hazards. It, uh, it, it had to be, um, it was canceled by two different successive presidential administrations. <laughs> um, and that, you know, one of the risks of these things is the time scale is long enough that you get it through and the government finally says, yeah, we're going to fund this. We like it. And then you get a new government. <laughs> and they say, well, that wasn't our idea. Forget it. And this happened multiple times. Um, and, they, you know, they sort of kept changing the rules on um, New Horizons. And then, there, you know, there were so many interesting crises. Uh, one was um, had to do with a nuclear power that you have to have a nuclear power source when you're going that far from the sun. Um, and that introduces other um Hazards. I mean, just just in terms of the regulation, uh, it's crazy getting something like that approved, especially when you've got a ticking clock and you have to launch by a certain date or you're going to miss your Jupiter flyby window. And so that was tricky. And then all these things happened. Los, Los Alamos Lab, which is the only place where they make the plutonium, got shut down because of a security breach. Um, and uh, they weren't going to have enough time to get enough plutonium. And, uh, you know, th so that's one whole area. Of, uh, of intrigue and, and, you know, near mishap. And then, you know, there were, there were a couple of just unfortunate technical accidents. There were, um, you know, there was a lot of just kind of like political um, uh, just machinations within NASA and outside of NASA that uh, outside of NASA that doomed, seemingly doomed the mission again and again. And, and, and this team, this crazy team of, you know, that called themselves the Pluto underground that were committed to this, goal, they kept having to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and basically start again. And um, it's really, it's really a, an amazing story of perseverance that they, they just didn't let it go. Yeah, I mean, not only the you, you discuss not only like the the technological um, hurdles, and then of course the political sphere, but but even just within the realm of space exploration, like suddenly, and given that that grand time span for the for the project, uh, new new things become exciting just within the realm of uh, space exploration that can potentially detract from a mission like this, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, there's something there, something comes along. You know, again, we're we're talking an effort that started in 1989, really succeeded in. 
2015. And, and, you know, it's a shifting landscape. New discoveries happen, um, new constituencies form within NASA to do do other kinds of missions. I mean, for instance, one thing that that came along um, during this time period was that Europa, the icy moon of, of Jupiter, got much more interesting in the, in the sense that we discovered um, with the Galileo mission, we discovered that Europa likely has an ocean and is a possible habitable environment. So um, the Pluto mission is doing well. And then all of a sudden there's this huge movement within the planetary science community to divert resources and um, compete a mission to Europa instead because of these discoveries. And, and you know, nobody on the New Horizons team is going to argue, well, Europa's not interesting and not important. Uh, I wouldn't argue that, that for a second. Everybody, you know, we all acknowledge that these are all important goals. But there's the shiny new thing all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, we've been waiting our turn, you know. <laughs> so that, things, things like that happen multiple times. I actually have heard of like a planetary partisanship before. You know, I had a friend who did some research on uh, Jupiter's moon Io, and she had some kind of negative things to say about Europa. <laughs> well, okay, I mean, there is, there is definitely an element of that, and in a way, the the way NASA sets up its um, its competition for missions um, kind of encourages that because. There are these different um, interest groups within NASA. There's like, uh, I mean, I'm really interested in Venus exploration. So I'm part of this group called VEXAG, the Venus Exploration Activities Group. And there's MEPAG, which is the Mars Exploration Activities Group. And then there's the Outer Planets Activities Group. And, you know, when we when NASA does their annual uh, decadal ranking of mission priorities, we're sort of organized into these different constituencies and we're all putting our favorite mission forward. So there is this competition, um, and then even beyond that, when there's a call for new missions, you know, there's going to be a small or medium class or large class mission, different teams compete, you know, and I've been on these teams, and you put years into these missions, and you compete really hard, so of course you want your mission, I mean, I want my Venus mission that I'm a co-investigator on to be selected, and then when an asteroid mission or a Jupiter mission or something gets selected instead, I'm really bummed about that but then at the same time so that's true and that's partly just a measure of the way we compete things but i i do have to say and i and this is really true that there's a larger sense in which we're all um on the same team and feel that way so that when the competition is over and one of these missions comes to the launch pad whether it's a mars mission an asteroid mission uh whatever everybody in the community cheers that launch i mean because we all you know, when you back up from that, we're all pretty psyched about exploring the whole solar system. And even though you'll hear me and some of my colleagues grumble about, oh, my God, another Mars mission got funded. What about <laughs> Venus? What about, you know, but then, then when that Mars mission actually launches and lands successfully, we get tears in our eyes, too. And we're like, this is so amazing. So, you know, we yeah, we compete for our separate constituencies, but we all, I think, also um, genuinely um root for and I, I identify with the larger project of, of exploring the solar system. Uh, yeah, I want to be clear in case my friend is listening. She, I think she was joking when she was slagging. <laughs> well, Europa. I mean, we do, we do joke about it, you know, every scheme and we're like, oh, the darn Mars, <laughs> IO people, you know. But at the end of the day, we're, we're I mean, and, you know, of course you get personal um, grudges and, all, you know, it's yeah. human, human beings are human beings. But at the end of the day, uh, we're all pretty excited about about all of the exploration. All right, we're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. 
I, I found it really astounding, especially to think about this as we were at the very close of the, the decade as we were uh, recording this. But at one point, I think during uh, 2000, you mentioned that NASA just shelved the idea of a Pluto mission altogether until the 2020s. So I think it's, it's amazing to think that there's like an alternate timeline out there in which uh, you and Alan might have written a book about the desire for a Pluto mission in the 2020s rather than what we have, a definitive history of the planet's first exploration. That's right. I mean, there's so many alternate timelines like that. And this was a case where basically, um, you know, more than once NASA let it, you know, got to the stage where there's going to be a competition for this mission, which is a huge win for the people wanting to go to Pluto. It's like if NASA's sponsoring a competition for proposals, that means they're going to pick a winning proposal. And then somebody gets to fly a mission to Pluto, and hopefully it's our team, but at least it's some team. So that's great. But then they have this competition, and everybody works really, really hard on all their proposals. And, you know, it's just crazy amount of effort to get this in. And then NASA says at the end of it, well, actually, we're not picking anybody, and um, the whole concept is is canceled um, because of budget problems. And, by the way, we're just not going to go – to Pluto for the next 20 years. <laughs> so that was actually something that was declared by the associate administrator of NASA at one point. And that was really a low point for the morale, as you can imagine. But there were interesting things that happened. Um, at that point, um, there was a big public interest campaign. There was uh, the, the Planetary Society got involved. They're a, a group that uh, advocates, um, a, a public membership group that advocates for planetary exploration and other, um, you know, the public got involved and there was a lot of press about this and people were like demanding, no, we want our government, we want NASA to send a mission to Pluto. And they, NASA got tens of thousands of letters saying, you can't cancel Pluto, we want this. And so there were points and that that point you mentioned where it was completely canceled was uh, one in particular where the public input um, became really key to keeping the effort going. Um, and, you know, of course, there were efforts by the Pluto underground to sort of help marshal that public interest and encourage letter writing. But at the same time, it was really genuine. There was there was indeed an outpouring of mass public support. And um, that's another thing that's interesting, I think, about the whole story was it at the heart of it. There's this band of, of sort of I guess I don't want to quite call them fanatics, but almost but like, you know, really uh, determined um scientists um who who wanted to do this um but then um there's also the larger planetary science community that had to be sort of won over to their cause and then and then outside of that there's just um the public that uh got very involved and at times um the support of the public was pivotal in um keeping the effort going and ultimately in uh, ensuring a success so we know uh, you have a special place in your heart for Venus, and maybe we can come back to that later on. But what is so captivating in particular about Pluto? Well, Pluto, of course, you know, historically, it's been the place that we just didn't know anything about. Um, and uh, so it was, you know, in science fiction from the golden age of science fiction in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, when we really didn't know anything about Pluto, it's this um, – this kind of mystery world. Um, and there's a lot of great lore, lore about Pluto. But then, of course, scientifically, once we started to learn about the existence of the Kuiper Belt, which is this whole third realm of the solar system, you know, you've got the 
inner rocky planets, the outer gas giants, and then the outer, outer Kuiper belt, which is this vast zone of these icy and rocky objects, you know, millions of them out beyond the orbit of Neptune that we didn't even know about. All we knew about was Pluto. It turned out we discovered really in the in the 1990s that Pluto is uh, the tip of the iceberg of this huge unknown realm of the solar system. And so that in itself made it very interesting to want to go and visit one of these bodies because those are leftovers from the formation of the solar system. You know, they're the sort of leftover uh, building pile of building materials that made the planet. So we know there's answers out there to questions of our own origins. But then, you know, there was always the possibility, certainly in my mind, and I know in the mind of some of the other, um, some of the people involved in the mission, that, well, what if against all odds this thing actually works and we get to Pluto, and then what if it's kind of boring? <laughs> It'd be cool to get there no matter what, but what if it's just kind of like a, a, a cratered ice ball? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you would learn some things, you count the craters, you measure what the surface made out of it. You know, it would, it would, no matter what, it would be cool. But, but in the back of my mind, it was like, well, you know, what if it's just not the most exciting place? And it seemed plausible because we have this sort of prejudice against um, cold places that are far from other things. We expect them to be inactive. And that's, you know, in, in our textbooks, you know, we thought the moons of Jupiter would be boring and inactive. And it turns out they're not because the gravitational pull of Jupiter makes them pulse with activity. We didn't know that till we got there. By the same token, a lot of people thought Pluto would be boring and inactive. And the thing that's, if I had to summarize, you know, in a very short number of sentences, what's surprising and exciting about Pluto compared to our expectations is that it's really active. It's geologically alive. It's not old and dead and just covered with craters. It pulses with activity. And that is something that nobody expected. And when those first pictures came in, um, you know, there was like, in addition to joy and elation and just sheer amazement um, by the, the team members, there was also this puzzlement of what is going on there? Why is this place so far from the sun? Also, you know, it's not just covered in craters. There's clearly activity going on there. And at first it was, you know, it really was, you know, a massive head scratching moment to figure out, okay, what, what's going on. And it, it's just so varied and, um, active and complex in a surprising and and delightful way that, um, you know, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around that. Well, uh, would you mind telling us a few, uh, like what are some of these uh, most uh, exciting and the, like the strangest revelations about this object? Yeah, what makes Pluto weird? So the first thing you notice, and there's all kinds of poetry in this, but it's true, you know, as you're approaching Pluto, even days away, you see this bright heart-shaped feature, the heart of Pluto, which is just kind of lovely. <laughs> but it's also, that turns out to be... Uh, a very, very intriguing and interesting formation. It's this massive, um, huge glacier of solid nitrogen um, called Sputnik Planitia. A lot of the places on Pluto have now been named after famous explorers or missions of exploration. And so we've got Tombaugh Regio. um, The heart itself is named Tombaugh Regio, really, which is the uh, after Clyde Tombaugh, the discoverer of Pluto, and then the big um, western or left ventricle, if you will, of the heart, uh, western uh, smooth area, is uh, the Sputnik Planitia, which is this massive uh, glacier of flowing solid nitrogen. 
And that was the big, you know, okay, so you see this area, it's big, it's bright, and there are absolutely no craters on it, zero. Hmm. And I remember John Spencer, who's, uh, you know, one of these old friends from grad school I was mentioning, who's been involved in this mission for a long, long time, who's one of the, uh, you know, very central, he's in the book, he's one of the people that helped uh, plan the mission and um, did a lot of important work and a lot of the scientific analysis. I remember him saying on the day of the encounter, if you had told me that the first that I'd ever told me that I'd see the first high resolution image of Pluto and it would have zero impact craters, no craters, I would not have believed you. And that's because craters are sort of our, our chronometers. You know, when you see a planetary surface full of craters, you know, it's an old surface that not much has happened to. It's just been collecting craters over the eons. And when you see a surface with no craters, then you say, okay, something's happening here. There's more recent activity. Something's filling in the old holes and paving it over. And this was, you know, a massive area um, with, with no craters. And it turns out um, that, and we didn't know this, um, but we should have known it because there's no new physics involved. It was just lack of imagination or, you know, this is why we explore because you discover things and you go, oh, I should have thought of that. But, but that, that it turns out that solid nitrogen at Pluto temperatures is squishy enough so that you build up enough of it that it does flow over geologic time hmm. uh, with a little bit of heat. And there's a little bit of heat coming from the interior of Pluto. So um, basically the act activity is uh, convecting and flowing solid nitrogen, which covers this massive area on Pluto. And then closer in you look, you see like things that are, you realize there's glaciers of nitrogen flowing out of the steep um, mountains on the edge of this thing. And the mountains are made out of um, water ice because water ice there has the properties of bedrock. You know, it's so cold. But if you actually look at those mountains, they have roughly the, the, the um, height and shape of like the, the Rocky Mountains on Earth. You know, they're like 14,000 foot peaks of water ice with glaciers of solid nitrogen flowing out of them onto these nitrogen plains. Wow. So it's, you know, it's a, you can find forms that look familiar and yet you look at what they're made out of and they're just really exotic materials. Isn't there also some amazing uh, precipitation situation on Pluto? Yes. And again, it's another one of these things where it's something that looks familiar, but it's weird stuff doing it. So on some of the um, high mountains, they're, they're snow-capped, but it's not snow the way we usually think of it. There are, there's methane snow hmm. wow. on top of some of these. So you have, you know, it's, it's the same things that you have on, on Earth. You have rock mountains and uh, water ice glaciers and water ice snow. On Pluto, you have uh, water ice mountains with nitrogen glaciers and methane snow. Wow. <laughs> All right, so as long as we're talking about just the, the, the properties of Pluto, I originally wasn't going to ask about this because I know you, you get it a lot, um, and, but you also discuss it in the book. So my, my second grade son is studying the planets in school, and he really wants you to weigh in on this. Is Pluto a planet? So if my one-word answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would tell your son, because maybe he's confused by hearing that because he might have heard in school that it's not, I would try to use it as a teachable moment and say, well, here's why some scientists think it's not. And here's why some scientists think it is. Because, you know, to my mind, what makes something a planet or not um, has to do with its intrinsic properties. What's that object like? 
uh, you know, and, and in my view, anything that's large enough to be round by its own gravity and have um, the features that we associate with planets, uh, you know, surface activity and mountains and atmosphere, which Pluto does, makes sense to call it a planet. Um, the IAU definition, which um, became very popular and which some people consider to be official, although though I don't, um, <laughs> it's, it's based more on not the properties of that object, but what's around it, how it's orbiting and what's orbiting around it. And, you know, if you're the kind of astronomer that doesn't think so much about what planets, the properties of planets themselves, doesn't worry about geology and meteorology, but is interested in um, looking through telescopes and identifying orbiting objects and thinking about classifying their orbits in different ways, then I could see how that sort of makes sense. Um, but but it also it least leads to some sort of absurdities. I mean, the, the basic thing is they say that if a planet dominates its zone and has cleared out other material, then it's actually a planet. And if it hasn't, then it's something else called a dwarf planet, which isn't really a planet, um, is what is said. The problem is it leads to some silly, in my view, silly things. Like if you took Earth and moved it somewhere else where there was a swarm of material, then it wouldn't be a planet anymore. Or even worse, even worse, by that definition, Earth itself was not a planet for its first 500 million years of existence when it was being pelted with um, objects that, you know, in its zone that had not yet been cleared out. And then it became a planet at some point, not because it changed, but because its environment changed. So um, what you will find is that um, there's a difference in the way planetary scientists speak about this from astronomers in general. And I'm a planetary scientist. I study planets for a living. And me and really most of my colleagues, I think, uh, we use the word planet when we talk about Pluto. We even use the word planet when we talk about um, the larger planet like moons, like Io and uh, and Titan, because, because again, they have the features that we are interested in thinking about and comparing between worlds. So... Um, I guess you could tell your son, <laughs> going back to that, <laughs> that some scientists, um, that, that a lot of the scientists who study planets use the word planet when they talk about Pluto because it has these things. And then, and then tell them about Pluto instead of worrying about the, uh, the definition, say, because it has mountains and it has an atmosphere and it's big and round because of gravity. And, you know, hopefully when you talk to kids, you steer the conversation into something more interesting than scientists arguing about nomenclature and actually, <laughs> actually talk about what's cool about Pluto, you know. Absolutely. Now, speaking of uh, nomenclature, uh, you also, at one point in the book, you talk about the, you know, the naming of, of the planet and some of the, you list some of the, the potential names that were thrown out there at one point. So, if, you know, if we're considering alternative history, there's also an alternative timeline where we're not talking about the exploration of Pluto, we're talking about the exploration of Tomboy, uh, which, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorites from that list you shared. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, so the discovery of Pluto in itself is a really just cool story, which we um, try to encapsulate in the book because Clyde Tombaugh himself was a really interesting character. And it was sort of, again, another kind of against all odds, uh, perseverance wins the day kind of story, which mm -hmm. is echoed, uh, you know, 70 years or uh, 80 years later uh, in the um, story of um, the success of, of uh, New Horizons. But when um, they, the planet was discovered at Lowell Observatory, um, then, um, you know, they, of course they made sure not to tell anybody till they were absolutely, they 
checked their work and we were absolutely certain they had found something so they didn't want to be accused of a false alarm. And uh, But then once they were sure, they announced it to the world and it was in all the newspapers and everything. And then ideas came flooding in, telegrams from, from all over the world um, uh, suggesting and letters suggesting names. Um, and some of them are pretty funny. I mean, well, first of all, there was some there was some politics involved, like Percival Lowell's, um, who was the guy, the you know, found, rich Bostonian astronomer who founded the Lowell Observatory, where it was um, uh, the search was successfully executed, and who actually um, really he started the search but didn't live to see it through. His widow wanted to call it um, Percy in honor, honor in honor of Percival Lowell, you know. And there were some some politics that had to be fended off. And then there were some very, very silly um, suggestions. Uh, like you mentioned tomboy. Yeah, like somebody was like, well, that sounds like Tombow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's, uh, they've got a great collection of these uh, in, um, at Lowell Observatory of the letters suggesting different names for Pluto. But the, the actual name, um, I love this, it, uh, came from a 10-year-old um, a, a, a um, English schoolgirl named Venetia Burney, um, who heard about the discovery of Pluto and um, mentioned it uh, um, at the dinner table to her parents who knew an astronomer um, that she had been doing some reading in mythology. And she, she suggested Pluto because of its underworld associations and its, you know, uh, all the, you know, the mythological um, associations. And, and this was sent by, um, uh, by, by Telegram um, and, and they loved it at Lowell Observatory. And there's part of the reason is because the first two letters, PL, um, is, uh, also, uh, honors Percival Lowell. And in fact, the symbol for Pluto, you know, all this, all the planets have kind of, uh, a symbol that, uh, uh comes out of, you know, mythology, mostly, um, like uh, the, the Mars symbol is, you know, the male, um, the, the circle with an arrow coming out of it and the Venus one is a circle with a cross coming out of it, etc. And the, the symbol that was adopted for Pluto has a P and an L, which stands for Pluto, but it also stands for Percival Lowell. So that way they were able to honor the uh, you know founder of the observatory without doing something so crass as to name it after him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love the the, the history uh, that you share there about that. Uh, yeah, because because you go through the yeah, the history of of thinking about Pluto, uh, you know, the, the discovering Pluto, and then leading up to this uh, exploration. But of course, at the the very start of the book, you uh, you really. It really to drive home just how you know, delicate these missions are and how high the stakes are, uh, you open with what could have been an, an extremely tragic moment for the spacecraft. Yeah, you know, we wanted to um, structure it a little bit like a thriller because mm-hmm. <laughs> the people for the people that lived through it, um, it, it was uh, like a thriller in that, you know, there were long stretches where not that much was happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, like the red lights are all flashing and it's like, oh, my God, disaster <laughs> looming. And and out of, of the many uh, sort of near death experiences that this mission um, experienced, perhaps the most dramatic was the one with which we opened the book, because um, this happened on approach to Pluto. Uh, when they were uh, 10 days out, all of a sudden they lost contact completely with the spacecraft. And that's something that should never happen, of course. Mm. And if it happens when you're a year out or six months out, 
then you have some time to work the problem and try to get back in touch, and hopefully you do. But when it happens when you're that close, it's really a panic because you don't have much time. Not only do you have that initial fear of what if we never hear from it again? Uh, you know, things do go wrong in spacecraft, and there have been spacecraft that have been, you know, there was one of the Mars spacecraft um, uh, was made all the way up, basically to the doorstep of Mars, and then something went wrong. It probably blew up uh, and was just never heard from again. So those things happen. So that's the initial fear. And then once they heard from New Horizons, it was a big relief. But what they heard from it was basically help. Um, something's gone wrong. I'm not. I'm in a bad condition. What should I do? Um, and which is good that the spacecraft knows to say that. And again, if it's six months out, then you have plenty of time to work the problem. But this was an emergency because it was literally days away from when they were going to start the final sequence of observations, that, that week-long period surrounding the closest encounter. Everything's automated, and it was about to begin that automated sequence. And the spacecraft is barreling down on Pluto a million miles a day, getting closer, and it's going to fly by no matter what, whether it's working or not. And you don't have a lot of time. And to make matters worse, at that point, you're so far from Earth with the spacecraft that it takes nine hours to send a signal to the spacecraft and get an answer back. So just saying, hey, are you okay? And then the spacecraft saying, yeah, well, I'm here, but, uh, you know, my main computer rebooted and I've lost all the commands for the final observing sequence, which is what it said. And just that bit of communication takes nine hours. And when you've only got a few days to start executing this <laughs> the, the sequence, that's really bad. And then, you know, so of course they have this emergency meeting and they figure out, try to assess the situation. By the way, this also happened on the 4th of July. <laughs> so, and the team had been given the day off to prepare for the intensity of the encounter to come. So the phone tree gets activated. People start coming in in their, you know, flip-flops and bathing suits from their barbecues. And um, and like that, in their flip-flops and bathing suits, people stay there for like three days. And, you know, they're sleeping under desks and eating out of vending machines and all that, like Apollo 13, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and they basically figure out they have three of these nine-hour communication um, turnaround times, three of these to work with. So they're going to have to fix the thing with three batches of commands. That's all the time they have. And they just get to work. And it's there's there's real heroism in this story. And, um, you know, we get to um, tell the, the story of um, some of these these characters, uh, you know, who um, have been working out of the limelight for, um, you know, for decades on this and suddenly have their moment of just like total heroism, you know, um, and that's that's great to be able to share that with people. Um, and this team just kicks into kicks into action, and they have to rewrite all the software and test it, and figure out ways to send it up and what to tell the spacecraft. And um, you know, nobody sleeps uh, for like multiple days, and um, just at the last minute, literally with hours to spare. They get um, everything reloaded on the spacecraft, and it's um, it, it ends up executing flawlessly. Um, but this was, you know, this was the moment of crisis that came after everything else, and was like sort of the last crazy hurdle to uh, be crossed before uh, before reaching Pluto. 
Wow, it's an amazing story. It uh, it makes you wonder what caused the malfunction to begin with. Did it get some trans-Neptunian malware? <laughs> Actually, they figured that out. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, and it, it, it was a little bit of an oversight, which is in itself an amazing part of the story because one thing you read about is how carefully they tested everything and simulated everything and accounted for every contingency and tested and retested and simulated and re-simulated. But there was one thing they did um, slightly wrong, and that was – so. What happened was the, uh, the main computer got overloaded because at the same time as they were loading up the final command sequences, they were compressing some other image files that it had previously taken to make more room in the memory. Oh. It was, and it was overloaded by doing all that. And you might ask, well, why didn't they simulate that, the compression uh, and the loading of the commands at the same time? And the answer is they had simulated that. But but the images that they had been using to compress in the simulation were like fake images of planets. They were like <laughs> em- empty, you know, empty circles to say, here's a planet image you're going to compress, you know, mm-hmm. while you do this. And it turned out that compared to the real images that it had to compress, they were um, it was it was more labor intensive for the for the computer to compress these real images than the fake images they had got given. Oh. And so that was the oversight that caused the computer to get overloaded and crash and cause this whole thing to happen. So the problem was literally that Pluto was too interesting. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah. 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 You know, but it also just illustrates that, you know, no matter how careful you are and these guys, I mean, what's amazing is how careful they were because. You only get one chance. And unlike earlier missions, there was only one New Horizons. I mean, you think of all the classic missions of explore, planetary exploration. There's Voyager, Viking, all these ones, these pioneer first missions to places. They did two in case one of them failed. And sometimes one of them did fail. But in this case, budget-wise and for other reasons, there was only one small spacecraft. And so it had to be perfect. So they tested and retested and had backup systems. But even given all that, there's just no way you can anticipate everything. And that's why you need like an amazing team like they had that can kick into action and solve problems when they come up. All right, we're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Now, of course, the, the journey doesn't end with, uh, with Pluto. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Aerokoth and the further adventures of New Horizons? Um, that's right. Pluto was, um, you know, maybe the, the highlight, but certainly not, not the end of the mission. And one thing that was kind of innovative, actually, about New Horizons, very innovative, was that all along the plan was not just to go to Pluto, but to go to Pluto and at least one and maybe more Kuiper Belt objects. And, and the mission was sold on that basis as a mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. But one kind of crazy aspect of that is that at the time of launch of New Horizons, they did not know of another Kuiper Belt object that New Horizons could meet, that could, could, could intersect after Pluto with the amount of fuel and on the trajectory that it was on. But they had very good statistical arguments as to why there should be such an object and why they should, with no problem, be able to discover it before New Horizons got to Pluto and redirect the trajectory because they knew that, you know, there were enough objects. They knew that they just, they, if you do the math, it shouldn't be hard to find another place for New Horizons to go to after Pluto. And you're going to find that object during the nine year journey to Pluto. So that logic was in the proposal and it was pretty good. But then what happened was as New Horizons was uh, approaching 
Pluto over all the years. It does the Jupiter flyby. It redirects its trajectory. It's heading out towards Pluto. And they're searching and searching with all the best ground-based telescopes on Mauna Kea and all these big telescopes. Um, and they're not finding the right object. They're not finding an object that New Horizons can get to. And then it got to the point where it was going to be too late and they weren't going to be able to um, execute that part of the mission. And at the, the sort of the last minute, they called in the Hubble Space Telescope. And there was some drama there because Hubble, of course, is very scheduled up for other observations. And they had to kind of go to NASA brass and say, look, this is really important. If you want New Horizons to succeed, we need to sort of commandeer a little bit of time on the Hubble t- for this search to find an object. And there was some some drama and some you know conflict. And then, But ultimately, they were able to do it. And literally, you know, it's another one of these sort of just in the nick of time, uh, they found an object that New Horizons could visit, which was, you know, MU-69 originally, and then <laughs> was given a more appropriate name. But, um, but uh, the, the, so just the finding of it was very dramatic. And then, um, but, but they did, and then, um, you know, they did the made the right trajectory correction so that after, after the Pluto encounter, um, New Horizons was on its way, um, but had to go another billion miles and traveled all the way from uh, July 2015 when they were at Pluto to New Year's Eve 2018, 2019, um, you know, so another uh, two and a half years. um, And um, finally, um, this encounter happened and uh, and boy, was it amazing. Again, another surprising object that, uh, you know, you've probably seen the pictures, but it looks sort of like a snowman, but just the the fact that it's this, uh, some kind of a contact binary, these two objects sort of squished together, uh, really reveals something about the formation of planets and the history of these objects out in the Kuiper belt. And again, you know, that just the targeting that went into, it's incredible how difficult it is. It's even harder than the targeting for Pluto because this object is small. You're not completely sure where it is. You're not completely sure where the spacecraft is. You got one shot to image it. You're moving very fast and you have to pre-program the images in advance. And just the fact that, you know, when they get that frame down, there's actually an object in focus in the image rather than looking at empty space because you targeted a little bit wrong. That's, that's <laughs> like people take that. It's easy to take that for granted because it works so well, but that's, you know, that's a, a real uh, incredible achievement. It is amazing. Um, so one thing I was wondering, if you don't mind kind of a tangent uh, while we're out here in the realm of trans-Neptunian objects, uh, I was wondering, do you have a, a professional opinion about uh, something we've talked about on the show uh, a while back, uh, the, the evidence seeming to indicate the existence of a far-off, larger planet out there that, well, I don't know if you'd use this terminology because of how you feel about naming Pluto, but what's being called Planet Nine? Yeah, I prefer Planet X. (laughs) (laughs) But um, my professional and my personal opinion is um, I hope they find it because it would be so cool to learn about another large um, planet in our our solar system. And um, I think I'm... Skeptical just because the history of this kind of prediction is, is, um, you know, sort of littered with, um, you know, with things that weren't found where people said, Mm -hmm. I haven't actually found it, but I found reason to believe it's there because of this statistical uh, aberration in um, the in other orbits. Um, There have been a lot of uh, sort of false alarms along those lines. but, uh, you know, it, whether or not we agree on what 
number should be assigned <laughs> to this <laughs> putative planet. I'm with them uh, completely in the hope that they do find it because uh, it would be a wonderful discovery. Yeah, uh, I'm very intrigued by the idea. Uh, so we, uh, we we mentioned earlier that we might give you some room to talk uh, about your passion planet, about Venus uh, here at the end if you wanted. Do, do you have anything to say about Venus? Like uh, what, what do you have your eye on there right now? Well, I'm very much um, hoping that we do get a mission to Venus in the next round of NASA selections because they were really overdue. And um, there's too much mystery about about that world, considering that it's, you know, the closest planet to us and in some ways the most Earth-like other planet. Um, and in particular, now we have more and more reason to think that Venus might have gone through a long phase when it was a habitable world. Uh, we used to have this, this picture that Venus uh, maybe had oceans early on but lost them very quickly in a runaway greenhouse. But the more we do detailed modeling of, of how an early Venus would transition to a planet without, uh, to a very hot and dry planet that we see today, the more we suspect that that took billions of years. And so it may be that Venus was an oceanic planet like Earth for billions of years, um, which is very intriguing, this picture of these two um, very similar, very, very nearby worlds, both of which could have been habitable for, you know, half the, or, or half the history of the solar system. Um, and so there are a lot, there are a lot of, um, mysteries that are very compelling as far as understanding how Earth-like worlds evolve, how climate evolves. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's sitting right there uh, waiting for us to explore. I mean, of course, Venus is a hard place to explore because the surface conditions now are so intense and because it's completely shrouded in clouds. You can't observe the surface from orbit except in the radar. Uh, you can't get to the surface very easily without a really uh, incredibly engineered machine. So it's not, you know, it makes sense that we've explored other places first because Venus is not low-hanging fruit as far as easy places to explore. But it's such a compelling place as far as the mysteries there that I, I do think that um, before long, either NASA or uh, the European Space Agency or um, maybe even the Russians, I mean, there are, no, there are a number of agencies considering ambitious new missions to uh, to Venus, and um, I'm excited, and I hope I'm I hope I'm still around when we really get to um, to answer some of these mysteries. For some reason, I've often thought uh, or thought for a long time one of the most haunting sets of images from the whole solar system is just those little tiny slivers we get of the surface of Venus from the Soviet Venera landers. I, I, there's not a lot in them, but every time I see them, I kind of get a shiver. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, there's something very kind of dreamlike about them. Um, because they look so real and so sort of familiar in some ways. I mean, here's a rocky world that's right next door. And yet, because they're, you know, maybe enhanced by the fact that the geometry of these images is so distorted and we, uh, just by the nature of the cameras that got them and we only have a few, it's just, it's like this glimpse of a world that we can't really bring into focus. Um, yeah. and, um, it really makes you want to see more clearly what's, you know, what's, What's over that hill and what's, you know, what is, what's really going on here? And so, um, yeah, next generation of spacecraft that could measure the minerals on the surface, um, measure the, uh, the composition of the atmosphere in a way that we haven't really done yet, uh, measure what's going on in the clouds where there's a lot of mystery. And even some people think there could be 
um, some kind of life in the clouds, uh, uh, believe it or not. Um, but then, but then also, like you say, you know, what's, what's going on with those surface images really image the surface well, and just give us more of a visual, uh, and physical sense of, of what that place is like. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited for that possibility. <laughs> well, tell us what we can do to help get us back to Venus. Flood NASA with letters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, honestly, um, uh, you know, it never hurts to uh, talk to your elected representatives. But, um, you know, honestly, I think just, you know, when you have an appropriate chance expressing enthusiasm for the the space uh, program and planetary planetary exploration uh, in general is is a good thing. And um, uh, I don't you know, I I feel like it's I feel like there is momentum to uh, do new missions to Venus, like it is going to happen in the next uh, timescale of the next uh, next decade. So I'm, I'm, maybe I'm foolishly optimistic, but I am optimistic about it. All right. Well, uh, the book is Chasing New Horizons Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto by Alan Stern and David Grinspoon. Uh, it's available now in, I think, all formats, correct? Yes, that's right. It's even, it just got, uh, just got published in Russian if you're uh, listening to this oh, program wow. and you don't speak English. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So, uh, so that book is is out. Uh, in the past, you've written on on Venus and you've written on Earth. Uh, so, where are you headed next, and how can listeners keep up with your work? Well, um, I uh, I have a website, um, funkyscience.net, and um, that's uh, I sometimes remember to keep it current. <laughs> I'm on Twitter as uh, Doctor Funky Spoon, um, and um, yeah, I'm going to be. I'm going to be, I got all kinds of things going on. I'm going to be teaching a class at Georgetown this spring on uh, how to predict the future, which maybe that'll turn into a book. I hope so. Oh. Uh, and, uh, you know, just catch me if you can. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, well, once again, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with us. Um, you know, the, the book is, is fabulous, and we, we, we strongly recommend it to all our listeners. Well, thanks a lot. It's been great having the opportunity to talk with you guys. Thanks, right. David. Thank you. All right, so there you have it. Again, the title of the book is Chasing New Horizons Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto by Alan Stern and David Grinspoon. Uh, it's out in just about any format you could possibly want a book. And, and again, I just have to drive home just how entertaining this book is. Uh, you might not think you want a, a book about machines and planets and distant planets, uh, but it is it is really exciting. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That'll set you on the right path. But you can find this podcast anywhere you get your podcast these days, wherever that happens to be. Make sure that you subscribe and make sure that you rate and review because this really helps us out. Huge thanks, of course, to Dr. David Grinspoon for joining us, but huge Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.